Welcome to the Cell Culture Dish podcast, Multistem, a stable off-the-shelf regenerative medicine has demonstrated promise in treating patients with acute respiratory distress syndrome, or ARDS. I'm Brandy Sargent, editor of the Cell Culture Dish. Joining me today is Dr. Gil Van Bocklin, chairman and CEO of Athersis. Dr. Van Bocklin has served as chairman of the board of directors at Athersis since August 2000, and as CEO since the company was formed, overseeing the growth and development of the primary business operations of the company and the transition from a venture-backed startup to a NASDAQ-listed public company. He also serves as chairman of the National Center for Regenerative Medicine. Dr. Van Bocklin received his PhD in genetics from Stanford University School of Medicine and earned degrees in both economics and molecular biology at the University of California at Berkeley. I'd like to start by asking how regenerative medicine therapies are different than traditional pharmaceuticals and biologics, and what value can they bring? It's a good question. So regenerative medicine really consists of several different types of therapies. It includes cell therapy, gene therapy, gene-modified cell therapy, and then tissue engineering approaches. So those four different sectors, if you will, comprise collectively the the regenerative medicine space. And regenerative medicine is fundamentally different from traditional pharmaceuticals or approaches that have been used to develop biological therapies, because typically those therapies are very specific entities or single agent therapies that act through a discrete, well-defined mechanism of action. Cells are different in that cells can actually work through multiple different mechanisms of action. So they're multidimensional in that regard. Gene therapy is different because gene therapy is not meant to provide a temporary fix for a specific problem or a specific challenge, but it's meant to provide, in some instances, a permanent cure or a long-term cure by addressing the underlying defect that is affecting the patient and causing the condition or causing the disease. So gene therapy and cell therapy are a little bit different from one another in terms of how they differ from pharmaceuticals and biologics, but together they really represent a broad approach, kind of a paradigm shift, if you will, in terms of how people think about approaching the treatment of a whole range of different diseases and conditions that are really not well served under current standards of care. And in that regard, that really gets to the type of value they can bring, because you can imagine that in contrast to putting somebody on a lifetime therapy of different types of medicines, to help mitigate the damage of a specific disease or condition, if you can actually offer up a specific intervention, whether it be one or a series of administrations of a cell therapy or gene-modified cell therapy or a gene therapy type of approach, and affect long-term durable improvement and even cures for many patients, that's a pretty exciting prospect. And it is also associated with a lot of value. Now, it also creates some potential challenges because we're still trying to figure out how do we establish a good reimbursement framework for therapies that might be a single dose or a single administration that could be curative and have an impact over many, many years. But there's actually been some pretty good progress on that front. So both in terms of the way that these types of therapies work and also the impact they can have in some cases over very long time frames, I think it's it's pretty exciting. I agree completely. I think it's really exciting to think about cures for diseases that have been managed or even untreatable up to this point. And also uh, what you mentioned about a new way to look at it is also really important because they're more expensive, but you have the potential to cure or 
uh, have a therapy that will last for a long period of time. And so it's exciting to, to think about these new therapies. And along those lines, I was hoping you could share with listeners um, in recent years, what have been some of the most exciting clinical breakthroughs regarding regenerative medicine? Well, it's actually pretty exciting in the sense that there's a growing number of things that have either been validated through clinical development and now approved by the FDA and other regulators. On the cell therapy front, the CAR-T therapies, which are gene-modified cell therapy approaches, the current therapies are actually autologous. So you take cells derived from the patient themselves, you genetically modify those cells, and then you reintroduce them into the patient to help fight the cancer that has, and in fact, by definition, these are patients that have failed other forms of therapies, other forms of, of intervention. And the progress on that front, I think, has been incredibly exciting, where we see several approaches that have really had an impact in terms of improving clinical outcomes, and in, in many cases, for patients that really had no other, no other hope because they had exhausted all the available treatment options, and then they were basically treated using these types of approaches. So those approaches are pretty exciting. I think that some of the gene therapy, there's several gene therapy products that have been approved over the past several years, um, whether it's uh, things like Zintiglo from Bluebird or Zilgentma from uh, Novartis or Avexis, which is the company that, uh, that Novartis acquired, or Luxterna from Spark Therapeutics. All of these have shown very, very exciting response levels among the patients that are being treated. So very, very high levels of progress, clinical progress, or curative effects, or demonstrable improvement in the primary clinical outcomes. And I think in many respects, these just represent the tip of the iceberg, if you will, in terms of things that are, that are coming. Um, recently, actually just a few days ago, out at the J.P. Morgan Conference in San Francisco, the Alliance for Regenerative Medicine Every year, they do a state-of-the-industry overview, and they present a lot of different data that really describes the phenomenal progress in terms of clinical development and companies advancing through the various phases of clinical development or seeing more and more things in phase two and phase three, and then also highlighting other things that are well-positioned or could be well-positioned for approval within the next couple of years. And I think all of the data that was presented this year really reinforces and underscores the fact that the regenerative medicine sector and community as a whole is making incredible progress that is attracting a lot of investments, a lot of uh, partnerships, and is making really good progress with respect to the regulatory and clinical side of things. I mean, we now have over a thousand programs that are in clinical development in the regenerative medicine sector. And I think that that really covers a lot of really exciting opportunities that, uh, that a lot of people have hope and optimism around in terms of how it can change medicine as we know it. Thank you so much for that. I think it's really helpful to have listeners get an overview or an update of where we're at right now because I know lots of us have been following regenerative medicine for many years, and so it's nice to have a update on what's currently going on. One of the areas that will be really interesting for our listeners is, of course, manufacturing. And I'm wondering if you could share with us some of the manufacturing challenges of today's regenerative medicine therapies. Yeah, that's another area that a lot of people are closely monitoring and following. At a high level, I think there's really three categories of challenges that relate to manufacturing. The first has to do with scalability. And if you think about the CAR-T therapies, they're tremendously exciting, but they're not the current therapies that have been approved are all autologous therapies. So it relies on isolating cells from the patient, sending those cells off to be genetically modified and characterized and then reintroduced ultimately sometime later into the patient. But that's not a really scalable process, and it's reflected in the economics of those therapies because they have to have really high reimbursement rates 
in order to cover the costs of the processing and everything else that goes into generating those types of therapies. What we're seeing is that there has been a lot of focus and effort, particularly over the past couple of years, on shifting towards the same types of therapeutic approaches, but basically using allogeneic approaches. So things that can be more or less off the shelf and don't have to be done on a patient-by-patient basis, which will improve the economics and I think address some of the other issues that relate to the use of some of these therapies. So I think that shift away from autologous into allogeneic therapies is a very important trend. And I think you're gonna see more and more of the activity that reflects that in the quarters and years to come. The, the second big challenge really relates to the scalability of the manufacturing process itself. I think that many different therapies that are out there have utilized during clinical development modest manufacturing processes or procedures that are not ideally suited towards commercial scale activity that many companies aspire to. When you're producing things on a more modest scale, it's not the same as producing things on a larger scale where the economics of it will improve, that maybe the consistency will improve, or other things may actually be relevant. So I think that there is more and more effort being placed on various technologies in terms of improving the manufacturing processes and procedures themselves in an effort to try and make them more scalable. And that's going to be an easier proposition for certain types of therapies than it may be for other therapies that don't lend themselves towards significant scale-up or significant scale-out, which might be just fundamental reflections of the limitations of the, the technologies themselves and the approaches that are being used. But I think the third challenge has to do with capacity. One of the things that has been written about a lot over the past few months and over the past few quarters is that there is a lack of commercial scale manufacturing capacity both in the context of what companies may have direct access to, but also what may be available through the contract manufacturing organizations, many smaller companies in particular who are doing a lot of this really innovative work, what they may be be able to get access to. And the growth of the manufacturing capacity, particularly as it relates to commercial scale, has really not kept pace with the growth of the industry itself and all the really exciting activity that is going on. I think ultimately those things have to be addressed, particularly the latter point in terms of the the capacity and access to capacity for many companies that have been primarily focused on advancing their programs through early clinical development into later and later stage clinical development. But ultimately, in order to make that a clinical reality for a meaningful number of patients, you really have to be able to effectively deal with increasing the scale or the access to scale, if you will, that you can utilize in order to be able to do this on a widespread basis. I think you make a lot of great points there. I think it's really interesting to look at manufacturing and and as you said, some of the key areas where we need a little bit of work and then areas where we've made a lot of improvements. I wanted to switch gears a little bit and ask you if you could briefly describe Athersis for us. So Athersis is a company that was originally established by a team of us about 25 years ago that came out of Stanford University Medical School. This included several faculty members from Stanford, from Yale School of Medicine and from Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine here in Cleveland, Ohio, where we're based. And, and then several other founding members, including myself, Dr. John Harrington, who's our chief scientific officer, Dr. Rob Mays, who is the head of our neuro programs and, uh, and, and heads up our stroke program, which maybe we'll talk about a little bit later and some of the other things that we're doing. So when we made the decision to pursue this path, to start a company, our focus was on developing technologies that we felt would have an impact on addressing substantial areas of unmet medical need. 
And at one point or another, we had all considered various options, whether it be on the clinical side or on the, on the research side. But the thing that brought us all together was the, the realization and the belief that we could develop innovative technologies that might really move the needle with respect to challenging or difficult areas of clinical medicine where current standard of care is inherently limited or just doesn't provide the type of relief that we would ultimately like to be able to offer up to patients that have severe conditions or might be pretty desperate. And so that's what the company was founded on. In the early days, we focused on some very intriguing non-viral gene therapy technology, something called synthetic human chromosome or artificial human chromosome technology. That led to the development of some proprietary genomics technologies that led to partnerships with a number of major pharma companies and other groups that we worked with over the years. And ultimately, led to our interest in the emerging field of regenerative medicine and cell therapy. And for more than 15 years now, that's really been the predominant focus of the company in terms of concentrating on how our proprietary technology may have relevance as an off-the-shelf therapy in the realm of, of regenerative medicine to treat areas in the critical care spectrum for medicine. So these are indications where patients, something really bad has happened to them or they have a very serious condition and they're typically in the hospital and, and most often in the intensive care unit and current standard of care is pretty limited. And so that, over time, our focus has kind of grown and evolved in recognition of what this, the technology that we work with might be able to offer up for patients like that. And now we're in late stage clinical development and have a whole pipeline of various programs that we're focused on. That's really exciting. Could you tell us about the development of multi-stem and what are some of the unique advantages of these cells in particular? So multi-stem is based on a discovery that goes back a few years ago to a unique class of cells that could be isolated out of healthy consenting donors. And typically, one of the easiest ways to do this is to take a, a bone marrow aspirate from a healthy consenting donor that's given their permission and then what we do is, is we isolate a heterogeneous mixture of cells, isolate the specific cells that comprise multi-stem. And the specific cells that we work with are, are referred to as multipotent adult progenitor cells. And we first became interested in these cells going back a few years ago because they had, they had some interesting biological capabilities and characteristics that we thought might lend them to development into a therapeutic platform. Specifically, what we first saw about these cells was that they have very unusual growth properties. So most people are aware, just to use an example to kind of illustrate why that's important, most people and most of your listeners recognize or know something about the history of bone marrow transplantation or hematopoietic stem cell transplantation. This goes back to the late 1950s and early 1960s. And of course, bone marrow transplantation or hematopoietic stem cell transplantation, as it's also referred to now, for every patient that you want to treat that might be need to be treated for leukemia or some type of bloodborne or hematologic malignancy, if they're undergoing radiation therapy, that wipes out their blood immune-forming system. And so in order to help the patient survive that treatment, which wipes out the cancer, but it also puts the patient in a highly compromised state, you have to do a, a bone marrow transplantation or hematopoietic stem cell transplant. And those cells are isolated from donors that are very carefully tissue matched with the patient you're trying to treat. Now, there's a couple of problems or challenges that relates to that process. The first problem is, is that you need to find a donor that is a very close match in order to limit the risk of or reduce the incentive of rejection or some of the really challenging complications that are associated with that procedure. So things like graft versus host disease or other things that can happen. 
But the, the fundamental problem is, is that for every donor that you isolate those cells from, you're only going to get enough material to treat one patient. And so every time you want to treat a new patient, you've got to go out and find another donor. So that entire process is kind of the opposite of scalable, if you will. It's always one-to-one. And in many instances, you have to search through many prospective donors to find the right donor that will give you the cells that have a close enough match to warrant under, undertaking the procedure. Well, multi-stem is kind of at the opposite end of the scalability spectrum. And that is because the cells that we work with, in, in contrast to most other cell types that can be isolated from the human body, once we've isolated these cells, we can actually grow them up in enormous quantity. So they have really robust growth properties. And we've published on this and other groups have published on it as well that show that these cells can be expanded to a phenomenal degree. And what we mean by that is, is that we've demonstrated that once we isolate cells from a healthy consenting donor, that we can actually produce the equivalent of millions of clinical doses, starting with a modest amount of material. We do that by creating a master cell bank and characterizing that bank, and then we can create working cell banks and then ultimately do clinical production runs. But ultimately, it harnesses the robust growth properties of these cells, which are very distinctive. And unlike other cell types, it can be isolated from the human body. The other thing that is very important is is that we also determined and verified or validated early on was that these cells have very unique immunological properties. And in fact, we've shown through multiple clinical programs and through years of preclinical work that we've conducted with numerous outside independent labs that we work with, that we can administer these cells just like type O blood. We don't have to tissue match and we don't have to immunosuppress the patients that we're administering multi-stem to. So when you combine that unique scalability profile with that off-the-shelf utility, if you will, where we can administer the cells without having to, uh, to tissue match and without having to immunosuppress the patients, it's really, really powerful. And in fact, we've shown because of the unique biological properties of these cells and the ways that they can, the multiple ways in which they can help influence healing and repair and reduce inflammatory mediated damage or do other things, that they have relevance across a range of pretty interesting and exciting therapeutic indications that we've worked on. So in summary, it's really those combination of factors, the scalability, the lack of a need to tissue match or immunosuppress, so the off-the-shelf utility of it. The other thing is is that we've got stability data that shows that we can keep these cells stable in frozen form for years if necessary. And so when you combine all of those factors, it creates a very powerful package that we think could create a lot of opportunity for us and the people that we work with in terms of using it as a way to treat patients that have suffered from a range of different events, whether it be a stroke or, uh, or acute respiratory distress syndrome or some of the other indications that we're focused on. That's really interesting because I think for a long time, been looking for a way to make cell therapy more scalable. And it sounds like a really great solution to that issue in a lot of ways. You mentioned acute respiratory distress syndrome or ARDS. Could you tell us a little bit more about it and how uh, multi-stem can help ARDS patients? So ARDS is a condition where the, the lung tissue has become highly inflamed and it no functions the way that the patient needs it to. So basically what ends up happening is is when the pulmonary tissue or the lung tissue becomes inflamed and it starts to fill up with fluid, a process referred to as edema, the lungs can't really absorb oxygen in the way that that we need to. And when the ability of the lungs to absorb oxygen properly has fallen below a critical threshold, 
then the clinician really has no other choice but to put the patient on a ventilator. So they're literally forcing oxygen into the lungs of the patient. And that's because it doesn't matter how many breaths the patient takes when their lungs are inflamed and, and filled with fluid. They're just not going to get enough oxygen to be able to survive that. And so clinically, what has been done for, for quite some time is you put the patient on a ventilator, you force oxygen into the lungs at a high concentration in an effort to keep the patient alive, get enough oxygen into their body so that they don't go into organ failure or have other things happen to them that really can end up being lethal or um, just create a whole bunch of complications or, or other adverse events that are very challenging and problematic. We discovered a few years ago that multi-stem has relevance in this because we were looking at various models that suggested that if we administer multi-stem intravenously, that the cells would actually home to the lungs when there's active inflammation in, in the lung tissue and have some pretty dramatic effects in terms of helping the body recover from those types of events. And uh, just recently, we actually announced some pretty exciting clinical data from uh, an exploratory study that we had been conducting that provided a lot of evidence to show that we could really help patients that are diagnosed with ARDS. It's a pretty big problem, ARDS uh, being a condition that affects a few hundred thousand people in, if you look at North America and Europe, which are two primary geographic areas that we are most focused on. And then we have a partnership in Japan with a company called Helios that's also focused on developing our, our platform over there for ARDS patients. And collectively, we think there's a lot of reasons to be hopeful and optimistic about how we might be able to really improve the standard of care for these patients because there really isn't a drug you can give them now that can really help them survive this. It's put them on a ventilator and kind of hope for the best, and then hopefully you can try and wean them off the ventilator once they've turned a corner. Wow, that is so exciting. I'm vaguely familiar with the ventilator situation, but I, I'm aware that there's a lot of other issues that can happen as a result of uh, being on a ventilator itself. And so uh, having a way to address an issue that really isn't being addressed very effectively right now is a really exciting development and really encouraging, I think, for, for the medical field. I'm curious, why did you choose to pursue ARDS? And then also would love to hear about other indications for multi-stem that are being looked at. So we are very much part of, I think, one of the things that we're very proud of as an organization is, is that we're, we're really an evidence-based research and development organization. And the short answer for why we chose ARDS was because the evidence began to mount over a period of years in a series of studies we conducted that told us that we could have an impact there. And it started with models that we were working in a few years ago where we were looking at both small but eventually large animal models that resulted in acute lung injury that could be precipitated or caused by a variety of different things. And what we consistently saw in these studies was when we administered multi-stem, we could overcome the inflammatory mediated damage and some of the other things that were happening in the lungs, which showed that we, we might be able to dramatically improve uh, outcomes in situations where there is pulmonary inflammation and other things going on that current medical approaches really don't provide an effective solution for. Just getting back to the, the ventilator, you actually correctly stated one of the consequences of having patients on a ventilator for an extended period of time. A lot of people don't realize how risky and problematic that is because the longer the patient is on the ventilator, you're creating stress on the lung tissue over and over and over again every time you force oxygen into the lungs, and it can lead to fibrosis or scarring and other types of problems, which frankly can make the path very difficult for patients, even when they're off the ventilator, to ever recover from that. 
But from a preclinical perspective, to get back to your question about why we chose ARDS, it started with the, the animal studies that we did, but then something very interesting happened just a few years ago. We were doing work with several of the leading transplant centers here in the United States that we have a good relationship with. And some of the investigators came to us with a problem that, they, that they're hampered by. And so these transplant specialists were focused on a challenge that they have in the field of lung transplantation. And specifically what they told us was they said, hey, we've seen the work that you guys have done in other models of acute lung inflammation. And we want to talk to you about a specific area of challenge that we have. Turns out that about 75% of the lungs that are isolated from organ donors that are then designated to be used for lung transplantation procedures, 75% of those lungs become highly inflamed and they start to, they go bad essentially before the transplant procedure can be conducted. And the reason why the lungs go bad is once they're once they're harvested, if you will, from the donor and either put on ice or stored for the subsequent transplantation procedure, the pulmonary tissue begins to experience inflammation from the resident immune cells and other things in the lungs that cause the lungs to become compromised over time. And very frequently within just a few hours, the, the lungs become, again, highly inflamed, filled with fluid, and you couldn't transplant those lungs into a patient that needs a lung transplant because essentially it would be like giving them ARDS. You would be taking out you know, the normal lungs, or, or not the normal lungs because they're obviously highly compromised in patients that need a lung transplant, but you would essentially do a swap and, and transplant in the new lungs from the donor. But if you transplant in those new lungs and they're highly inflamed, and they don't function properly, then the patient's going to be in a, in a bad way right from the get-go. So they came to us and they said, hey, we want to explore something with you guys. We want to see if we take some of these lungs that have already started to go bad. They've, they're already compromised and experiencing severe inflammation, and they're compromised in terms of their ability to absorb oxygen. We want to perfuse one side with multi-stem and as a control, we'll perfuse the other side with the saline that we use to administer the multi-stem and let's see what happens. The logic was is that since we saw in the animal models a big impact on restoring pulmonary function and reducing the inflammatory mediated cascade and pathways, that we might be able to turn things around. And sure enough, when we did that study, we saw in actual human lungs that were isolated from donors that there was a dramatic impact, that when we perfused one side of the lungs with multi-stem, it actually caused the pulmonary function to return back to the normal range. We dramatically reduced the inflammatory mediated damage. And, and so these transplant specialists immediately suggested, hey, maybe we should just start taking human lungs from donors and start perfusing them with multi-stem as a way to, to prep these lungs so that we can keep them in a better state for a longer period of time or have a higher probability of being able to conduct the transplant procedure for patients that need a lung transplant. Ultimately, though, that's a limited number of patients that are impacted that. In, in the United States, it's probably somewhere around 1,500 to 2,000 patients per year. And when we looked at that, we thought, you know, that might be a very, very difficult clinical trial to enroll. And, and so we started to think about alternatives, and we realized, you know what? ARDS, which is estimated to affect a couple hundred thousand people per year here in the United States, that might be a better target because it's the exact same process, but it, it might be that there's a lot more patients out there that we could enroll for a study like that. Same underlying biological principles, but it just might be a simpler study to actually run at the end of the day. So we decided to focus on that. 
And ultimately, we ran a clinical trial at leading pulmonary critical care centers in the United States and in the UK. And it was about a dozen centers at all. So we ran a study and we just recently announced the one-year follow-up from that study. And so the primary results, which were presented last year at the American Thoracic Society meeting, showed that we had a pretty dramatic impact in terms of reducing mortality within the initial roughly one-month assessment period, which is kind of the primary evaluation period, um, in terms of improving mortality, improving ventilator-free days and ICU-free days for patients that had been diagnosed with ARDS and were, were really, really sick. And the biggest impact was actually observed among the patients that had severe ARDS. So they had the most compromised lung function and we saw that that's where we were, we were actually moving the needle the most, if you will. Just more recently, just a few days ago, we, we announced the one-year highlights from the follow-up. And what that showed was that not only were we helping patients in the short term in terms of improving their clinical metrics and their odds of survival, but we also showed that we were dramatically improving quality of life outcomes for many of these patients, particularly among the most severely ill. That's pretty noteworthy because a lot of the patients that have ARDS, you can imagine, imagine you're kind of trapped in your own body and you're in the hospital, in the ICU, you're on a ventilator, you can't move around, you've got a team of nurses or other people that are taking care of your most basic needs, and you might be like that for weeks. Many of these patients have to be put into a medically in coma, but you can imagine that when patients actually ultimately emerge from that, even when they're discharged, there's a big overhang from that. There's a physical overhang, there's a psychological overhang. And many patients never really get back to the quality of life that they once enjoyed or that ideally they would like to get back to. Um, one of the really exciting things from our study was we showed we were actually helping many patients get back to the quality of life and the independence level that they really wanted to get back to. And I think when you couple that with the clinical observations from the study, it was pretty exciting. We've seen similar types of responses in some of the other things that we're focused on clinically. So, for example, we conducted a phase two clinical trial in treating ischemic stroke patients, which is another huge area of unmet medical need. A lot of people don't really realize that for patients that suffer an ischemic stroke, there is a very tight time window for, for patients to get to the hospital and then undergo treatment with the limited treatment options that are currently available. And our phase two study showed that we could effectively help patients up to 36 hours after they had suffered an ischemic stroke. And for both ARDS and for stroke, we've received fast-track designation from the FDA and some other exciting designations. Our stroke program, for example, got something called ARMAT, which is like the equivalent of breakthrough therapy designation from the FDA. And now we're well into a phase three study that we're running for stroke patients. And a lot of people believe that for both ARDS and for stroke, we might really be able to meaningfully improve clinical care for patients that in many instances have nowhere else to turn. And, and frankly, that's exactly why we founded the company going back 25 years ago was because that was the type of impact that we were really committed to having. Well, that all sounds wonderful. I'm fascinated by the ARDS uh, therapy, and I think it's just a wonderful development in a situation where uh, people have very few options. Um, so this, this is just fantastic. I think I can speak for listeners when I say that we'll all be following your progress through the clinic and to commercialization very closely and are uh, very thankful that you took the time to talk to us today. I love hearing about uh, regenerative medicine and cell and gene therapies as we have been covering them for a long time. And it's so exciting to see 
these therapeutic modalities move from uh, the clinic into commercialization and to see new opportunities arise. So I just want to thank you again for your time today. It was really very interesting and I really appreciate it. Well, Brandy, thank you very much. I appreciate your interest in the company and what we're doing. And, uh, and thanks for spending your time and your effort on trying to educate people more broadly about some of the exciting things that are going on in the field. Definitely. And in the show notes, we'll include links so that people can learn more about the work that you're doing as well. Excellent. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Cell Culture Dish podcast. To learn more about this and other stem cell and biomanufacturing related topics, please visit us at www.cellculturedish.com or for downstream biomanufacturing topics, www.downstreamcolumn.com.